And welcome to Catholics Coast to Coast, where deepening your faith and walk with God is the accomplished part of each and every week, where we want to dive hard into the conversations happening in Podcast Central. Just go to EWTN.com slash radio so you don't miss out on what's happening and catch up on maybe what you've missed. As we jump in this week, we're going to go right into Springs in the Desert, as Julian is helping to welcome back Counselor Edward Lursman, who on this week's podcast is actually actually talking about grief and how it can manifest itself during infertility. I know that for many that is a struggle, and while it is very acceptable and healthy, grieving through that infertility is also what they're talking about this week to help you through a Catholic lens. This is Deserts in the Spring on this week's Catholics Coast to Coast. Welcome to the Springs in the Desert podcast. We're those friends that you can take with you wherever you are on the path of infertility. Welcome back to the Springs in the Desert podcast. I am Jillian, your host, and today I am joined once again by just a good friend of ours at Springs in the Desert. We have Edward Luresman. How are you today, Edward? I'm doing great, Jillian. It's good to be with you again. Yes, we really just appreciate your perspective on so many areas of infertility and loss. And today we are going to talk about grief, which is something that all of us in this community experience. But I think there's a lot of hesitancy around grief or questions about grief. We hear a lot of, from a lot of um, women and couples in our community that they feel like they can't grieve infertility or that they don't know what that looks like, or even they might be experiencing grief, but they don't know what to call it, that they don't quite know what is it that I'm experiencing or why am I feeling this way? So I think that this conversation is really going to just open up yeah, some good understanding of what grief is. So Edward, from your perspective as a, a mental health professional, could you talk a little bit about some of the losses that are experienced within infertility? Of course, there's clearly the loss of not being able to conceive, but what does that kind of look like? And what are maybe some losses that happen after that or that are around that? Yeah. I'm so happy we can talk about this because I think we really need to own that. Yes, we really yes. need to own that and own that there's a grief, the emotional response to yep. that loss. Yes. So anyways, yes, I'm glad that we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different losses involved with it, right? Like you said, there's a real void that comes from not being able to grow your family the way that you hoped or expected to. Right. So there is that kind of that emptiness that's left there. Uh, Even yeah. if you are able to conceive or adopt later, there's still that that absence of children that could have been there. So, but along with that, think about it. There's the loss of being able to take on the identity as Mm. mother or father, Mm. to take on that new life state of parenthood. Like it's a completely life-changing experience, right? And expect that change to happen. And then when Mm. it doesn't, then you have to grieve that. And it's very disconcerting. So there's that, there's the the sense of community, the sense of belonging. Hey, my friends are having kids, my yeah. family, my brother yeah. have kids, or all the young adults or adults in the parish seem to be having kids and I don't feel like I belong. So that sense of I am moving alongside these people or they're moving alongside me, we can lose that sense of having that. The loss of supportive relationships. I feel like my relationships that I trusted before and now all of a sudden it feels like maybe they don't understand or they just don't get it. They're not accompanying me. Maybe they're not asking me how I'm doing. Those kind of things. And then a big thing that I've been thinking about is like the loss of innocence, mm-hmm. like how simple mm-hmm. things used to be. 
And two, now I don't trust that things are going to be easy anymore. And I see that time and time again with clients and personally too. I don't trust that it's going to be easy. Anything's going to be easy anymore. So yeah, wow. You just named so many things that I have experienced that I, yeah, I didn't necessarily even relate to infertility. That's just really profound. And I think I I really appreciate that idea. We can own and really put into words that infertility is something to be grieved. It is something that can be really challenging to process and for, for years to come, even after, yeah, just various life experiences. Those things I'm sure can come up again and again. And that's maybe the next question I'd like to ask you, like what, what are like the stages of grief? And it, is it, I've heard that it's not something that's linear, that it can like ebb and flow or it can come back up again. So yeah, what might that look like for someone? And something that you just said too, Jillian, that really struck me was like how this impacts us going into the future. And my wife and I have talked about that recently about how this changes your old life path forever. You know, yes, about yeah. like, oh, if we do become parents, we're going to be older than what we expected we we're going to be and stuff like yeah. that. So there are different like, stages yes. of like how this loss impacts you now and then how it impacts you in the future, even if, hey, we, we can't add children to the mix. It's just not the same anymore. We're changed and our life path has changed. But yeah, specifically with the stages of grief, you're right. It's, I think there's a misunderstanding, a common misconception that, hey, there's these five stages of grief. You just have to linearly move through them. I experience denial. And then next up is anger. And then, then I feel depressed. That's actually a really common misconception. Okay. The stages of grief were developed to kind of understand what is it like to go through the dying process. And okay. that was, they were observations of some different stages that the theorists noticed. But it's not a prescription. It's not a, hey, you have to, your grief has to look like this. Sure, yeah. And you're right, but infertility in particular, right, is not linear. We don't just have this one and done loss and then boom, we are angry about it and then we're sad about it and then we are bargaining and then we reach acceptance. No, it's a roller coaster, right? Yeah, yep. Like in particular for infertility, it's up and down, it's... We have hope about the next cycle, then all the hopes get built up where this treatment's going to work and then it doesn't and then we're devastated and we're despairing again and then then our hope builds up again, but maybe we're more cautious and then we get let down again. It's just topsy-turvy. So if anything, I'm like, maybe you like are cycling through a whole bunch of those emotions and maybe other ones. Mm. I think it's just helpful to look at the stages of grief as maybe, does this help you think about what you're experiencing does this maybe put some words to what you're experiencing but again like it's okay if some of it's relatable and some of it's not okay some of it isn't maybe you're like yeah i experienced something different or maybe i experienced cycles or that is a really helpful perspective to have because i think especially because there are like so many great universities to go to and you have to teach tangible markers for people to be able to test on and things like I I feel like when I was taught these things or when people spoke about them it was like these are the five stages of grief this is what it's going to look like and so look out for that like these are helpful things to look out for but that was it there wasn't like so when yeah when I was experiencing maybe other feelings I thought oh this isn't grief this is something else. Like I I try to assign it to something else when in fact maybe it is part of the grieving. And I like what you said about does it help you put words to what you're feeling? And if not, maybe just forget it. Maybe just put it to the side and realize that your grieving process looks a little different because it likely does look different than the next person. (laughs) Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, okay. So for someone in this community or someone experiencing infertility or loss, 
has now accepted that this has given themselves permission to grieve, that this is really is something to grieve. And now they are realizing maybe some of their feelings or maybe even behaviors can be attributed to that grief. What are like, how can we begin to process that? Or what do we do with those feelings now? If we are experiencing maybe one of these more typical stages of grief, like bargaining or anger or whatever, or maybe it's a different feeling or a different response. What do we do now with it? What are some kind of maybe general practical tips you could give us? Well, I think self-awareness is really important. I think that's the first step, right? We, we have to recognize what it is that we're feeling. So we really need to dig into that and say, yeah, what emotions or what reactions am I aware of? Is there anything else that I'm experiencing that maybe I haven't noticed before? I think you just got to become aware of this is a real loss. Again, let's validate that it's a real loss. Yes. And then how is that truly impacting me? Mm. So dig in a little bit more into your emotional life, your experience. Sometimes hearing other people's, like reading other people's can be like, oh, wow, that puts words to what I was experiencing. I didn't know. So however you need to do that, like I think reading into a lot of resources can be helpful. So just recognize that. Here's what I'm feeling. And then we need to really like feel those things. Like I think it'd be helpful just to enter into that emotional space to say, no, I really do feel down. I feel depressed. I feel devastated. And it's okay for me to feel that way. I'm not going to suppress that. I'm not going to suppress that part of my emotional reaction. I can tell you right now as a therapist that emotional suppression is not a good way, (laughs) not not a recommended way of coping with these things. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Just like it perpetuates it. It it, it makes us, then we get caught in shame. Why am I feeling this way? I shouldn't feel this way. And then it bottles up. The emotions are like asking to come out and we're pushing them down. If, If you really are feeling those emotions come up, Find a safe way and you can work with a therapist to figure out how to do that. If you're like feeling overwhelmed and you're like, I don't know how to deal with those emotions if I let them out. Yeah. Get help with that. You can get support with that's okay. But really working towards actually like going there and letting yourself feel those things. It's incredibly healing to do that. It's freeing. Yeah. Again, it goes part and parcel with owning it as loss. But yeah, yeah, really going into those difficult places we're, it's cathartic, we're letting it out, then navigate adjusting to this reality, right? Mm-hmm. Pain. Now we need to figure out how to navigate this reality with loss. Yeah. Something you, you just said about when we suppress those feelings, now we can spin into other things like the containers pouring into other areas of your life. And I, I'm sure I know I can relate to that when I, whether I don't feel like I can speak about it or if I didn't give myself permission to really feel those feelings that perhaps I am, yeah, I let it pour into my relationship with my husband or work or even my understanding of myself or prayer, or I could see that really just overflowing into other areas. Yeah, I really appreciate this perspective. Even Anne and Kimberly, the founding mothers of Springs in the Desert, they had mentioned that, I think specifically Anne mentioned that it wasn't until she really started hearing other stories and founded Springs that she realized that infertility is something that can and often should be grieved that, and like giving yourself space to do that. And mm-hmm. yeah, and some might be with a, a mental health professional is around them that can really help them. What are maybe some other common ways if, um, would you suggest maybe journaling or probably um, talking about it with your spouse or what are some other ways that might look? Yeah. 
Yeah. It could be any relationship. You know, sure. I think yep. Ideally, your spouse would be one of those people that you can open up to, but it can be complicated sometimes if some of the emotions come around, like some disconnects with your spouse. Do you really care about this? Ah. Are you like, actually hit by this? That's a common one that I experienced, which is just we're in different places or sure. one spouse is more expressive than the other. Yeah. So yeah. Ideally, makes spouse would be another person to talk with, but obviously if it's, if they're implicated and it's complicated, it's okay if you're talking with someone else. Yeah. I appreciate that. I think that's probably true for many couples. They're just at different places. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, like you you mentioned journaling. That's another really good one. Prayer, expressive Mm -hmm. prayer, like actually pouring out your heart to God. Like it's a conversation. Telling him how you're feeling, even if it's in relation to him too, it's okay. You can talk to him about that. But there's a lot of creative ways you can go about that too. There's a lot. I'm not as creative, but some people are channeling that through music or Mm -hmm. art. Yeah, you know, like yeah. Different body-based like movements. Like some people are more into dance or things like that. There's so many creative ways you can go about that. So the limits are endless. You're not limited by my lack of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> those are some of the ones that pop into my head. Uh, Whatever yeah. resonates with you. That really, you're like, wow, that's my way of channeling my emotions. That's my way of expressing and processing my emotions. Do it. Those are really helpful suggestions. And yeah, I'm sure there are creative ways to process that and allow yourself to experience it while also moving towards this, yeah, a more heal, healing understanding and, and position. So yeah, that is so great. Thank you so much for just this, yeah, really beautiful advice. These other reflections are meant to be shorter and really practical and helpful for our listeners. So another, yeah, way of practicality is, Edward, can you just share with us where you're licensed? And if someone would like to get in touch with you, yeah, where do you serve? Yeah. So I'm located in central Ohio and my license is through the state of Ohio. So anybody who is within Ohio, 100%, that's an option via telehealth or meeting me in person in the Columbus area. Okay. If people are outside the state, I'm happy to hear from you and talk with you. And if you're looking, need help looking for a therapist, I'm happy to help. But as of right now, it's tricky. I can't really work with people outside of Ohio. Hopefully we change that. Yes. That's coming down the pipeline until something changes. That's yeah. Listeners, Edward is just a a good dear friend of Springs in the Desert that if you are looking, if you're near, I'm sure he's got many connections and definitely resources in other states that he could direct you to, or at least other resources that might point you in the right direction. So feel free to reach out. His contact information where you can find him will be in the show notes today. Edward, thank you so much for being with us today. And yeah, listeners, I just, I want to repeat once again that infertility is definitely something to be grieved. And we just hope to be that friend walking with you on that path. And we hope that this episode can bring uh, a little bit of uh, brevity to what you're experiencing. So I will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us for this Springs in the Desert podcast episode. We would be so grateful if you took a minute to rate and review us so that we can reach more listeners. Don't forget to check out our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram and go to our website, springsinthedesert.org, where you can sign up for our newsletter and community prayer list, read our blog, and register for virtual and in-person events. Most importantly, remember that God loves you so much and so do we. 
helping you to grieve in infertility. That is Springs in the Desert. If you want to hear the full conversation, just go to EWTN.com slash radio. You can also subscribe and find out more about what's coming and what you might have missed. Share that with your friends, anyone that you know needs it this week. I'm H1K. We're going to take a quick break, but when Catholics Coast to Coast returns, we're going to walk the road to Emmaus with Dr. Scott Hahn and his latest book, Catholics in Exile, helping to answer that question, are Catholics in exile? And he's got a book on the biblical wisdoms for the journey home. You can find out more on our Podcast Central page. And also, while you check that out, you can share it with friends. But in the meantime, we'll dive into the road to Emmaus coming up next on Catholics Coast to Coast. We are wrapping up a week of reflecting upon the joyful mysteries of the rosary here on the Daily Dose of Encouragement. And Patty, what's the final reflection you're going to share with us today? So today we're going to talk about the fifth joyful mystery, the finding in the temple. Losing our Lord had to frighten Mary and Joseph as nothing else. And sometimes when we face difficult situations or face evil head on, we often wondered, Jesus, where are you? Often we don't realize it, but when we lose our peace or we feel frustrated or lost, we are the ones who have strayed from Jesus. Jesus is always where he said he would be and doing what he said he must do in his father's house, united with the father in perfect love, fulfilling his father's will. And he also promised that if we seek him, we will find him. Where can we find Jesus? We can always seek him before the tabernacle, in adoration, in sacred scripture, in the sacrament of reconciliation, and at every mass. Jesus, being about his father's business, is seeking to be found. With this decade of the rosary, let's pray for all who are lost, that they will know the joy in finding Jesus. And when we feel frustrated or we feel that we've, we're lost, we realize we're the ones who have strayed and let us seek Jesus again quickly. Patty, this has been an insightful week for us as we've reflected upon the joyful mysteries. And if you have enjoyed these daily doses of encouragement, we encourage you to share them with a friend in the podcast, The Daily Dose of Encouragement. You can find that at ourcatholicradio.org or wherever you get your podcast. And next week, week we continue reflecting upon the rosary until then patty thank you for this week today is the memorial of saint Teresa of jesus doctor of the church born in avila spain in 1515 Teresa was one of three children and grew up with a great love for the saints at the age of seven she ran away briefly with her older brother with the idea that the two would become martyrs when she was 11 after already having lost her brother john her mother died Teresa found consolation in her love of Jesus and devotion to the Blessed Mother. Sent to finish her education at the monastery of the Augustinian nuns, Teresa became very sick. It was during this time in her life she began to have periods of ecstasy and visions of Jesus, which she described as providing perfect union with God. But after a while, she began to doubt her experiences. Her confessor, St. Francis Borgia, however, assured her that these were truly from God. All of this gave Teresa a lifelong desire to suffer for the Lord. 
After entering the Carmelite monastery, she became disenchanted with the lax atmosphere of the cloister and over time urged significant reforms. In 1567, she was given permission to start houses more dedicated to the Carmelite mission and then began to travel throughout Spain, urging other Carmelites to follow. She had the support of St. John of the Cross and St. Anthony of Padua. However, Teresa encountered significant resistance and for three years, from 1576 to 1579, she was forced into retirement. But through the intercession of King Philip II of Spain and Pope Gregory VIII, Teresa was returned to her mission of reform. While on one of her journeys, she became ill and died on this day in 1582. Her last words were, My Lord and my spouse, the hour I have longed for has come. It is time to meet one another. St. Teresa of Jesus, please pray for us. If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN Radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts today. Hi, this is Scott Hahn, and I want to welcome you to The Road to Emmaus, a podcast from the St. Paul Center. And today, once again, I am joined by my good friend, Rob Corzine, Vice President here at the St. Paul Center. Welcome, Rob. So good to be here. Well, I think you want to set this up because you know what we're going to be talking about. Yes, we are talking about your newest book, The Most Recently Delivered Baby, uh, (laughs) Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. And I think this is kind of the third volume in a trilogy, but there, there are different ways to have a trilogy. So, like the Lord of the Rings is talked of as a trilogy, but it's really books one and two, books three and four, and books five and six of one novel. And you don't read them out of order. This, and that was planned, right? This was not planned as a trilogy. This is just a sequence of books that kind of implied each other. So you did a book a few years back called The First Society on the sacrament of marriage. And in that, there's a shocking claim that um, that you got from a, a professor that if Catholics lived the sacrament of marriage faithfully for a generation, it would transform society. We would see Christian society come about. And that sort of leaves a reader hanging with going, well, okay, well, what would a Christian society look like? If we do this, what do we get? And so it's the book, It Is Right and Just, where you look at the secular value of religion, you know, that if it is right and if we say it is right and just to give God thanks and praise, that implies that it is wrong and unjust not to give God thanks and praise. So the virtue of religion lived out, and not just religion in general, but the Catholic religion. And so you paint this beautiful, you and Brandon McGinley paint this beautiful picture of a Christian society. At the end of that, I think a lot of readers had what I had, was like, it would be lovely to live there. It would be lovely to even just get to vote for that. But that's never going to be on the ballot for me. I'm never going to get to live in a Christian society. I live in this society and feel kind of alienated uh, from it. And now I resent it more than I did before. 
And so that implies this book. And what is the biblical model for the situation that we find ourselves in as believing Catholics in our modern society? And you propose the biblical model is exile. Yeah, you're right. Uh, so looking at all of these books, I realized there was a trilogy. It's a sort of kingship of Christ trilogy because we have to figure out how to live our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ and make that more than jargon or just wishful thinking. And when I think back to the first society, the, the sacrament of matrimony and the restoration of the social order, I, I began that book by focus, focusing on the temptation that we need to avoid. That is namely nostalgia, that we can't think, oh, wow, if only we could go back to the 50s where you have Bing Crosby playing a Catholic priest and winning awards. You had Archbishop Fulton Sheen on TV and you had Leave it to Beaver showing the, the model family, this kind of nuclear family. Uh, first of all, it's just not possible. You can't squeeze toothpaste back into the tube. Second of all, it really isn't even desirable because what the 50s shows us is just how superficial and fragile that arrangement was. So I, I also em employed that, um, that story uh, from Father Keefe, uh, first semester, my doctoral program when I was still a Protestant. And it was something of a throwaway line, at least we thought so at the time. But I mean, as soon as he was done saying that if Catholics simply lived the grace of the sacrament of matrimony within one generation, you would have a transformed culture, a Christian culture, and, and the Catholic values imbuing it and all of that. And I remember also, I mean, working through that book, and I had a new conversation partner at the time. He wasn't a co-author yet, and yet Brandon McGinley was a young intellectual, fresh out of Princeton, living nearby in Pittsburgh, where both of us had grown up, and a student of the Princeton professor, Robbie George, who's a close friend and a deep thinker and provocative. And so that conversation got started, the fruit of which is that second book, It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. And, you know, I was just simply lifting a line from the liturgy, obviously, it is right and just, always and everywhere, you know, to give him thanks and praise. And so as you just, you know, just implied, it would be wrong and unjust and not a little bit off, but profoundly wrong. And so when you finish that book, a lot of people who read it had the sense, as you indicated, that it's like, I don't think my grandkids have a chance of seeing <laughs> that, you know. And, and so, well, what do we do? How do we adjust to reality? And that is Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. I had a friend of mine recently tell me after reading this that it's actually interchangeable. It's sort of like a triangle. It, it doesn't really start in one place and end in the third angle. You can almost start anywhere. Yeah, I think it's a corona, right? Because at the end of Catholics in Exile, like how do I become the kind of Catholic exile living a Christian life in a pagan place and blessing the city. Oh, I better live my marriage right. It comes back to the first society. That's right. You know, the subtitle, I think, is not a throwaway line either. Biblical wisdom for the journey home. You know, um, I had a friend also tell me when he read this that it feels like the narrative arc is not simply from the first society through it is right and just now to Catholics in exile, but he said, uh, really, the narrative arc begins way back with the Lamb's Supper, mm. the Mass is heaven on earth, because 
if the Eucharistic liturgy is really surrounding us with the, the power of the angels and the saints, then this is really where it all begins and ends. But the reason why I underscore the notion of biblical wisdom is uh, twofold. On the one hand, we often think, well, if the New Testament fulfills the old, we ought to have happy days in the new in a way that they didn't have in the old. And so in the old, the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel, practically all of them end up where? In the diaspora, in exile, as sojourners. And so we think, well, once the new covenant fulfills the old, that's going to go away. When in fact, you know, it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. The New Testament clarifies the fact of the exile, especially in my favorite New Testament book, that is Hebrews, and especially in the Hall of Fame, and that is Hebrews chapter 11. Mm. In that chapter, we have a veritable list in chronological order of all of the great saints, beginning with Abel and then going through Noah. And then especially with Abraham, he gets a singular treatment. But throughout this chapter, which concludes with those who were in actual exile, you get a sense that they all shared it in common, whether they were sojourners like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or whether they were the people coming out of Israel, wandering in the wilderness for some 40 years under Moses, or et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking in particular of certain verses in Hebrews 11 that play out throughout the entire book. For example, in, descri- in describing Abraham, in Hebrews 11, verse 10, we read, For he, Abraham, looked forward to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Full stop. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? Well, when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees and then settles as a sojourner in the promised land, the promised land would look to be the final destination. Whereas, in fact, this geographical turf called Palestine, Canaan, or whatever else you want to call it. This is really a kind of terrestrial typology that for Abraham as a man of faith represented more than, you know, the promised land about the size of New Jersey. It really becomes a sign that points to heaven so that when Jerusalem is eventually conquered and made the spiritual center and the royal capital, even then, the people of God who were living by faith would have come up to Jerusalem and seen the man-made temple and said to, said to themselves, well, in a real deep sense, we're still in exile because this is only a signpost that points beyond itself to that city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Now, I don't want to take this tangent, and I won't, mm. but I just want to gesture towards it because is this simply a Christian imposition upon the Old Testament. In other words, when Christ comes and we realize it isn't Shangri-La now as it wasn't before, is this an alien assumption about what Abraham's faith really had as its object? And the answer is no. There's plenty of evidence throughout the Old upon which the author of Hebrews is building. But it's not just Abraham in Hebrews 11.10. It's talking about all of these people who died in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Well, that's because the land hadn't been delivered to them. They didn't get the title. They hadn't established the boundaries. No. The author continues, for people who speak thus make it clear 
that they are seeking a homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Thud. Wait a minute. You mean to say that the kingdom of David that had Jerusalem on earth and the temple of Solomon and all of the pilgrims coming up, not only from the 12 tribes, but like the queen of Sheba journeying from Ethiopia, that this was not the main event. This was really not the goal of it all. Well, in a provisional sense, it was, but really it wasn't. Yeah, the psalm goes on, psalmist goes on a lot about Zion and your holy house and your holy city and this holy hill. It's a Yes, but not quite. Yeah, I mean, when you have the vision of Isaiah that commissions him as a prophet from God, he hears the seraphim singing the liturgical hymn, Holy, 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 but it's not in the man-made temple down on earth in Jerusalem. It's clearly in a heavenly temple in what the rabbis, what the ancients began to recognize more and more clearly is a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem. Not only do you find that as the climax to the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, coming down as a bride adorned for her husband in the shape of a cube. What is that? Well, it's the Holy of Holies, but it's not the Holy of Holies that was made by Israelites. It wasn't the temple made by man. And so it causes us to kind of have to step back and rethink everything. And then we discover, you know, an a kind of maxim that was always true, and not just in biblical history, but in any human effort, as Aristotle would say, that what is last in execution is first in intention, that the New Testament is not plan B, the Old Testament must have plan been plan A. No, the new is concealed in the old, and the old is not only revealed, but fulfilled in the new. And so you begin to realize that this was always the case, so that no matter where you are, on the planet, you are in exile. And this is why in First Peter chapter 1, the opening verses, we use that as the opening of the book, to the exiles of the dispersion, chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here in our first encyclical, you might say, Peter makes it clear that people who aren't where they're supposed to be are the definition of exiles. And so we are in exile. And again, I want to say that these three are in a sense triangular, they're convergent, they're mutually illuminating, but you could pick up any one of these three books, The First Society, It Is Right and Just, or this one, My Newest Baby. And I know you were the one who introduced it with the obstetric metaphor of the <laughs> newborn. I mean, I, I, I must say that for, for men who can't conceive and bear a baby, you know, this is probably the closest thing. It takes longer than nine months, let me tell you, <laughs> especially this one. This was like in conversation, you know, going all the way back to COVID. Uh, but I am so grateful for my journeyman, my partner, my co-author, Brandon McGinley, because I can't imagine a better conversation partner who can listen to me for long periods of time and then really push back and, and, and illustrate these points practically and also supplement them profoundly. So with the Hebrews passage, we've kind of backed into, but let's make explicit what this notion of of exile is, right? This is someone who is not at home, who's in an alien land, who's 
far from home and who might feel really, um, well, we talked about the one thing, nostalgic, right, yeah. of, a, of a sort of desire to to get back there. But the the other side of it is that this is someone who has a home. This is not just a homeless person uh, who's away. From, this is someone who has a home and and isn't there. Right. And so it's not getting back to the 50s. It's not even getting back to the 1250s. Um, the home that you're talking about is that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Yeah. So, so nostalgia is the one one way you can mistake um, and uh, and want to get back to this this earthly city. I think there's the the opposite side of that is when you realize there's no way that you can. You know, it's easy to to respond with rejection and despair, and this isn't my home, and I don't care about it. I have no responsibilities towards this world. I come from a fundamentalist background and that was a big part of the right. way that the way that we functioned. We're like our job is to just get people saved so we can bail out of this this world. This world is going to hell. We've read the back of the book and we know that this there's no future for this world. Let's just like get everybody to make the sinner's prayer and we'll all go to heaven when the rapture comes. Yeah, I remember that vividly from the 70s, you know, with the rapture theory as the dominant view of eschatology, the end of time, you know, and the, the one metaphor, the, the, the one line was something like, why rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic? Yep. You know, we're going down and it's sooner <laughs> than later, you know? And, and so cultural activity was not only avoided, it was snubbed. Um, and it just, it, it was a kind of sign of unbelief. Well, no, that's not the case. And, you know, if Hebrews 11 is the privileged pa- passage from the New Testament, I want to point out that in this book, that is Catholics in exile. The privileged passage from the Old Testament is Jeremiah, especially 29, because throughout all of Jeremiah, you have the prophet who predicted the exile, who entered into it himself, but also was the beacon of divine light that would shine for all of those who are going to be captured and dispersed and find themselves sojourning in where Babylon as God willed, what do we do? And why would he will it? And you discover in Jeremiah 29, some very familiar words. In fact, I meet people from time to time who will point to Jeremiah 29, 11 and say, that's my favorite verse. Kimberly was that way for a while. Yep. It reads, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, shalom, peace, to give you a future and a hope. Well, that's beautiful, but it's somewhat jarring when you recognize that it comes right after a really kind of sobering message. And what is it? Well, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And what does the letter contain? Thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 4, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, and now comes a list of seven points. Hmm. Point number one, build houses and live in them. Not just pitch tents. Okay, so there's going to be something semi-permanent about this arrangement. (laughs) Yeah, settle down and feel at home even though you know you're not at home. And then number two, Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Well, isn't that going to enhance property values? Yeah, that's not a bad thing. And so you want to plant gardens and eat their produce because God wants to bless you in what feels to be a foreign land. And it is, but not in, not exclusively. Number three, take wives and have sons and daughters. In other words, the privileging of marriage and the family isn't something that is only true in the promised land. Wherever you are, cherish this covenant called marriage and be fruitful and celebrate the gifts of your sons and daughters. And, and it's the sign that you have a future. Exactly. And it's not just like the next election cycle, we might get a candidate to win. It's an intergenerational sort of thing. And so take wives and have sons and daughters, and then take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Whoa, this is not next fall's crop. This is more like planting a forest that you might not ever get to see, but it'll supply the lumber for your grandkids' furniture as well as their housing. And then number five, multiply there and do not decrease. So be fruitful and multiply is not just for the Garden of Eden or in the Promised Land. It's wherever you are present in marriage and family in the presence of God as well. Number six, this might have been the most disturbing thing of all. That is, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Mm. I mean, you can think of how Jonah just abhorred the thought of even offering Nineveh the chance of repentance and survival. You know, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, I think Jonah wanted to show up, but only after 41 days just to survey the wreckage. But here, the, the, the exiles are being encouraged to seek, to pray, to strive for the shalom, the welfare of the city to which they've been driven into exile. And number seven, I think in so many ways is the climax, as seven often is, and that is pray to the Lord on its behalf, not just for your spouse, not just for your kids, not just for your gardens, but for the people who have captured you and who now basically surround you with their own power structures. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, that is the city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the all the earlier things could be, here's the plan for how you take over Babylon. Like right. Build houses, plant gardens, have sons and daughters, increase, and then we'll beat them. And he says, and but that's not where he goes. Instead, it's pray for, you know, seek the welfare, seek the good of the city where I have sent you, not just its subversion or even its conversion. Right. Now, there's a twist that we bring out in this book as well. In Catholics in Exile, we point to a preceding chapter. Uh, go back to Jeremiah 24, and you have one of the most curious oracles of the prophet of exile. And that is, it's a an oracle about a basket full of figs. And in that basket, you've got some good figs and you've got some bad figs. And all of the people who are left in Jerusalem automatically assume we must be the good figs. <laughs> Why? Because we're survivors. We're the remnant. We've been preserved. You know, and Isaiah, a century before, actually did describe the survivors who were left in Jerusalem as a righteous remnant, because empirically it was true. But Jeremiah says, okay, that's still true, but with a twist and a serious twist. And why? Because the bad figs are the ones left in Jerusalem, the corrupt rulers, the king, 
of David, in the line of David, who has ignored the words of the Lord, who has basically spurned the true prophets and gone after false prophets. So then who are the good figs, Jeremiah? They're the ones in exile. They're the ones who've been humbled impoverished, but they're the ones who are finding their faith in a dark place and actually thriving. And God has made his presence known to, to, to them. Yeah. So it is the complete reversal of fortunes that those who are prospering politically, economically, there in the holy city are basically rotten fruit. Whereas the ones who have been humbled, laid low, and that are finding an entirely new and deeper way of trusting God, raising their families and being faithful to their spouses and that sort of thing, they're the real deal. So let's just take a step back. I want to begin wrapping up this part of our podcast because we're going to probably have a a second one where we discuss some more aspects of Catholics in exile. But I just want to contextualize this. You know, you think about people who are striving to be virtuous, and yet they're, they find themselves afraid of their government. The secular rulers do not celebrate virtue. They actually sometimes target those who are virtuous, but it's not just the secular rulers who are corrupt. You actually have members of the clergy who seem to be complicit. And what am I describing? Am I describing the 21st century? No, of course not. I'm describing the first century. I'm describing Jerusalem and Bethlehem and how the Holy Family, to whom we dedicated this book, by the way, and and how the Holy Family are striving to live virtuous and faithful lives. And yet at the same time, they're afraid of the secular ruler by the name of Herod the Great. And these priests who are complicit with him in basically helping him identify where the Messiah is expected to be born because of the prophecy of Micah. Now, they know Herod is not going to go to Bethlehem in order to worship his rival, this (laughs) newborn king. No, and yet they give him the information anyway. And the Holy Family basically has to flee to Egypt. Talk about exile. But we're also talking about you know, fast forward 30 years or more, because the idea of Christ and his disciples striving to live virtuous lives, and, you know, they're, they're, they expect to be celebrated for it, you know, at least the disciples, and it's, it, it seems to be a viable interpretation. Hosanna to the highest, the triumphal entry, laying the, you know, all of the palm branches down to receive their king, but in less than a week, It's crucify him, crucify him. It's Barabbas. We want Barabbas. You know, talk about a crazed crowd. And here are, once again, corrupt rulers on the secular side of life, but also complicit clergy, beginning with the high priests going down to the Sanhedrin. You know, are these like the only two blips on the screen, the radar screen that we've got? No, this is not an exceptional set of circumstances, nor two sets. This really does illustrate why it is that when the new fulfills the old, it's not like a rerun of happy days. Mm. So what I want to do in wrapping up is just to ask our Lord to help us at this point in history to recognize the signs of the times and read them aright, you know, because that's precisely what Jesus did in chiding the Pharisees, you know, because they just didn't understand the signs of the times. They didn't see the imminent judgment upon the people who were in charge of the royal city and indeed the sacred temple and how within a generation, not one stone will be left upon another. Well, I'm not going to predict that for America or for Europe or any place because I'm not a prophet. 
nor the son of a prophet, to quote a prophet, Amos. <laughs> but I, I think it's enough to kind of wrap things up and then we'll resume the conversation later on. Any, any closing thought that you have? Yeah, I mean, nothing is harder to predict than the future. Um, yeah. But the, the one thing that, the, another thing that pops out uh, from me, from, for me from that Jeremiah 29 is that in, we know that it was in part Israel's unfaithfulness that led to their being exiled. But here in Jeremiah 29, the, the prophet is, is saying, this is not how to make the best of a bad situation. It doesn't even talk about repentance. It talks about them as though God had sent them on mission to Babylon. And um, you know, it's where I have sent you. And then a few verses down, it's where I'm going to, to bring you back. You're in my hands. And it sort of pushes back, I think, to, to the, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy, where God is going to have his way. And you can have it one of two ways. You can either be faithful and I'll show my glory, or you can be unfaithful and I'll show my glory, but you can't unchoose yourself. And we as Catholics are in the same place. Now, listeners, I want you to understand something, and that is Rob Corzine knows me. So he knows what he just did. <laughs> he wasn't just queuing up the next episode. He was dangling raw meat in front of us, a hungry dog. Uh, and, and so I, I, I can't bite. And, and he knows that I can't, but he knows how much I'm chomping at the bit to bite. So let me just say, you know, there is an essay that we published years ago of mine in uh, Letter and Spirit. It deals with Romans 9 to 11, because when you discover that the gifts and the calling of God to Israel are, in fact, irrevocable, you realize that the New Testament doesn't replace the old. It fulfills it. But fulfillment is not revoking. It is not annulling. It is not canceling. It is a transformative fulfillment that involves both continuity and discontinuity. So the bottom line is this. If God's calling and God's gifts that he gave to Israel are not revoked, then what's the deal? And you just gestured toward it. And I want to wrap it up by kind of identifying this, whether we pick it up on the next episode or not. And that is, when God said to Moses at the burning bush, go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. There is no exclusive monopoly of family privileges for Israel alone. Any more than when I raised my our firstborn son, Michael, that excluded Gabriel, Hannah, Jeremiah, Joseph, and David. No, the purpose of God the Father for his firstborn nation, Israel, was to go out to all of the nations as a light to the nations, as a holy nation, as a kingdom of priests, and bring them back to me. But Israel succumbed to the temptation that Americans succumb to, too, even if they sometimes are devout Catholics, and that is Israel first. America first. And I understand from a secular natural perspective, you want your nation to, to really prosper. But the fact is, if you're a holy nation, if you're a kingdom of priests, God's plan is go out to the nations, bear witness to me, and then bring them back to me. And if you refuse, and they did, just like Americans do, then the exile represents, you'll go out to the nations, and you'll end up bringing it back to me, in spite of your infidelities, but precisely because of my never-ending mercy. And so this, to me, is why the church is not like a different covenant. It is new and eternal. It's plan A. And so what we've got to do is, practically speaking, we've got to decode the covenant plan of Almighty God because that's the only story into which our lives have been truly scripted for all eternity. Mm. 
So thanks a lot. (laughs) In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We turn to you, Almighty God, and we do give you our thanks and our praise. We want to do it always and everywhere. Every square inch of planet Earth for which Jesus has bled and died, every single soul, every man, woman, and child that he points to and says, mine, Father. And so in his holy name, we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit to come down upon us and all flesh, all nations, that we would truly form a Catholic family, a Catholic church. So hear us then as we pray that Catholic family prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Paul, pray for us. We thank you for joining us on this podcast episode of The Road to Emmaus, where we were just just discussing this book, Catholics in Exile. You can get a copy for yourself, preferably by going to stpaulcenter.com, and you can check out the alternative sites. But uh, we would be most pleased if you came to us for Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. Rob, thank you for joining me and for facilitating this conversation. We'll be starting up again for the next episode here shortly. It was a delight as always. Well, it is a timeless message calibrated here precisely for our time. That is Scott Hahn and Road to Emmaus. If you want to hear the entire conversation, make sure you check us out at Podcast Central at EWTN.com slash radio. And as we continue this week's Catholics Coast to Coast, this morning's readings from the Mass, let's dive into your word on the word. Are you excited about your wedding day? Of course. I'm excited about the sacrament and being married, but... You know, planning a wedding is super stressful. Well, this Sunday, we're talking about a royal wedding feast. Today, we're taking a look at a parable from Matthew. In it, the king sent out his servants on three separate occasions to gather people to come to his son's wedding feast. The first group would not come. Some of the second group killed the servants inviting them. And the third group was made up of both good and bad people. At this point, it seems like everybody was invited. But when the king walked in, he saw a man not dressed in his wedding garments. The king then had the man bound and cast out into the darkness. What do you think he was wearing? Not the point. Anyway, one could interpret this as though everyone is invited to God's heavenly banquet. But not all will be led into the kingdom, only the repentant sinners. This week, we challenge you to be like the servants in the parable. Invite someone to come to Mass or Adoration with you. And catch us next week right here on EWTN. Bye. Toodles. More insights from this morning's readings from the Mass. If you want to find out more on Word on the Word and any of our podcasts, easy to find. Just go to Podcast Central at EWTN.com slash radio. That way you can always catch up on conversations you've missed and to definitely not miss anything in the future. We got new shows all the time, so you don't want to miss out. Again, check it out online when you get some time this week. I'm Ace McKay, going to take off, and I hope you have an amazing opportunity to dive in closer to your walk with God and let Him be the one who defines who you are. I'll see you back next week with Catholics Coast to Coast.